The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, what a privilege it is for us to gather together and to have your completed canon of Scripture. How unique among all the ages that here in this church age we have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the freedom in our nation to gather, to assemble together this morning and to study that revelation. We have the freedom to say whatever we wish to say about your word and have no fear of government interference or any sort of restraint put upon us. Therefore, we have the, the incredible freedom to study, to learn, and to apply your word in our lives. Now, Father, this morning as we gather together to worship you by studying your word, pray that you would uh, strengthen our concentration and our focus, that we may learn these things, that under the power of filling teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we may understand these spiritual truths here to apply them to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We continue our study of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. How phenomenal it is that we understand the Scriptures, that God has provided everything for us, that we do nothing to save ourselves. We cannot contribute. We cannot participate. All we do is accept it as a free gift. That is what Paul is impressing the Galatians with in this epistle, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and thus it has ever been. In the Old Testament, salvation was not by works. It was not by the Mosaic Covenant. People in the Old Testament were not saved by obedience to law any more than they are in the New Testament. And that is the argument that he is presenting in this portion of Galatians chapter 3. In the last few weeks, we have discussed Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And embedded within that concept of the curse of the law is the idea that the law is not given to man for blessing as a way to salvation, but it is a curse. Because it is the law itself, as Paul will further develop in this chapter, it is the law that brings inherently with it the reality of our inability to keep the law, that we are all sinners. And Christ paid the price for that sin. That's the concept, the doctrine of redemption. Verse 14 tells us the purpose, twofold purpose in that, in order that in, and we saw that that should be correctly translated, in order that by means or by the personal agency of Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And we spent two weeks studying the biblical concept of covenants, that a covenant is a contract between two parties, party of the first part being God, and in the case of the Abrahamic covenant, the party of the second part is Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant was given initially to Abraham and reestablished with Isaac and Jacob so that it became known as the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were three parts to that covenant. There was a promise of a specific land that God would give a specific portion of real estate to the nation Israel, and that was further expanded upon in the real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. The second paragraph dealt with the seed provision, and we will expand upon that a little bit more this morning. And that was covered or expanded upon in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. And then the third portion of the Abrahamic covenant dealt with a blessing that through Abraham all nations, all the Gentiles would be blessed in the new covenant. And that is further expounded upon in Jeremiah 31, 27 to 37 and Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. Now this understanding of the Abrahamic covenant and the real estate, Davidic, and New Covenants is background for understanding Paul's argument beginning in verse 15. 
is going back to the basic concept of a contract. And here he uses what is called an a fortiori argument. Let me spell that for you. This is an argument that is derived from logic. It's a Latin term. A fortiori, F-O-R-T-I-O-R-I, and it literally means from the stronger reason. So you establish in your premise a, a certainty, and if that is true because of the strength or force of that argument, therefore if that's true, something lesser is true. So you argue from, the, uh, from a greater position to a lesser position. In other words, if one argument of this type in the Scripture is if God did everything for us, at the cross and solve the greatest problem that we ever face at the cross, then God can solve any other problem we face. You see how it moves from the greater to the lesser. If God is for us, who can be against us? These are all forms of the a fortiori argument. And Paul uses that here in verse 15. Let me read these next three verses to us so we understand the context. Or I'll read down through verse 18. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Verse 15, he begins by using the word brethren. Brethren is addressed, means that he is addressing this to believers. So he is clearly viewing the Galatian church as a congregation made up of believers. So therefore, the issues here are not related to their salvation, but related to their spiritual life. And then he says, I speak in terms of human relations. I speak in terms of human relations. And in the Greek, this is the phrase kata, the preposition kata, plus the accusative of man, which is anthropon. This always means, this is K, K A T A, and A N T H R O P O, and the accusative ending noon. This means according to a standard and is an idiom for saying according to human practices or the practices of man, according to the standard of man, according to standard operating procedure in human relationships. And the issue here is common everyday contractual agreements between men. So Paul is going to argue from the a greater to the lesser. He's going to argue that from the greater principle that if man, fallen, sinful man, who can't keep his word, who frequently lies and breaks his word, if man can have a, an understanding of contracts such that these contracts, once they're made or ratified, cannot be broken, how much more so Will God, who is absolute truth and, and perfect faithfulness, always honor his word? If man does in the arena of contracts, then God will do so even more. That's the structure of his argument here. So he's going to start with human relations. I speak in accordance with human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, or even though it is only a human contract between two people, yet when it has been ratified... No one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So here you have two people, one and two, and they establish a contract. Maybe it's a real estate contract. Maybe it's uh, a contract for the purchase of goods. Maybe it's the contract between uh, a, a manager, manager or an overlord and his servant or slave. But there is a contract, and both parties, one and two, are bound by that contract. Once that contract is sealed, you can't go back and change the terms on that contract. That's what it means by ratification, which comes from the uh, Greek kurao, 
which means to invest something with power or force to confirm it or to ratify it. We find this in, in, in the Greek. It's in the perfect passive participle. It is an arthros, which means it doesn't have an article with it, which indicates that it is an adjectival uh, participle, or excuse me, an adverbial participle of time, which is correctly translated in the New American Standard when it has been ratified or when it has been confirmed. Once that happens in the past, the perfect tense indicates past action with results that go on into the future. And it's emphasizing, the perfect tense emphasizes the completion of this in the past, that once it has taken place, once a contract or a covenant has been ratified, then no one ever sets it aside. And this is the Greek word, atheteo. Looks like this in the Greek, atheteo, a T-H-E-T-E-O. And atheteo means to reject, to refuse, to ignore, to render invalid, or to set aside, or to break. So Paul is saying that once a human covenant in the human realm is has been ratified or accepted by both sides, no one nullifies it, no one sets it aside, no one breaks it, or adds conditions to it. Once it's been done... It's been done permanently. Now, his analogy is going to be to take the human analogy of a human covenant, that if this is true about a human covenant, that nothing changes about it, then even more so is this true about the divine covenant between God and Abraham. If that, God will not go back and change things or add to it. And so the, his point is going to be made in the next in verse 17. But in the middle of this, between verse 15 and 16, there is a one-sentence digression that is a very important digression and has some interesting implications. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Notice how Paul is going to exegete this. He's going to quote from back in Genesis chapter uh, 15, where we have the Abrahamic covenant given and the promise God makes to Abraham and to his seed. And, and now Paul is going to exegete that passage for us. He says, He, that is God, does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one. He uses the word seed, individual, and to your seed, that is Christ. And here, Paul gives us a model an example for doing Bible study. That is an emphasis on the individual words of Scripture. And this is a very important verse because of its implications for understanding the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. So this morning, I want to take the time to look at the doctrine of inspiration and why this is important for us to understand it. We have not studied this doctrine since I've been here, so we need to review it. And I thought it would be interesting having discussed this or having developed this from the Scriptures to then go back and look at our doctrinal statement and see how that stacks up to what the Scripture says. I'm going to be doing this at several times. I've spent the last couple of weeks looking over the doctrinal statement and one of the things that the deacons and I all agreed to when I came last year was that there were aspects of the doctrinal statement that needed to be uh, cleaned up a little bit, uh, refined a little bit. Not that the doctrine that's inherently there is, is wrong or distorted in any way, but that maybe the way it is stated or expressed in the doctrinal statement needs to be improved upon, especially in light of contemporary issues and crises. So we're just going to give an example of that today when we look at this definition. Okay, let's begin with the definition of inspiration under point number one. Doctrine of inspiration, point one, definition. Definition. Inspiration. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor. Let me say that again for those of you who are desperately trying to write this down. God the Holy Spirit 
so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waving their, and this is an important list to understand, without waving their human intelligence, human intelligence, that means that he doesn't, if, if one of the writers of Scripture had a lower IQ than another one, God doesn't come in and mess with his IQ. He uses their IQ wherever it is. Without waving their human intelligence, their vocabulary. For example, Peter was a fisherman. Peter did not speak Greek as, a, as his primary language, and so he, uh, he had a, a more limited vocabulary and background in Greek than the Apostle Paul had. Very possibly, Luke was well-trained not only in Koine Greek, but in classical Greek. You, you, there are a lot of classical idioms in Luke's writing, and those come through. In the Gospel of John that we study in the second hour, we see that there are certain words and certain terms that are very common in John, but you don't find them in the Apostle Paul. The same is true that certain terms and phrases that are very unique or that are unique to the Apostle Paul and found only in Pauline literature are not found in other writers of Scripture. So God does not waive their vocabulary, their individuality. You see that each has his own style. So we include the concept of literary style. Uh, John has a very simple vocabulary and a very simple style. And as we've seen in our study of John, he frequently chooses words that have a double meaning because he can communicate two or three things at one time through the use of these words. Uh, Paul constructs very lengthy, complex sentences. In the original Greek, Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3, going all the way down to almost the end of the chapter, is all one convoluted, complex sentence. Yet in most English Bibles, they break it up into five or six sentences for the ease of reading. But in the Greek, it's all one sentence. But you don't find that kind of construction in John. John uses very simple sentence construction. Without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality. You see their personality come through. You see Paul, especially in the book of Galatians, you see how, uh, how strong he feels about the importance of doctrine, how he just comes right out and hits them over the head with their imbecility and their stupidity and their ignorance of what they've been taught. And he doesn't hold back at all. He's very, very strong and harsh with them whereas John would probably handle it differently because of his personality. Uh, God the Holy Spirit does not override their personal feelings. We see how their personal feelings come through in different passages. And then any other human factor, that's the list. Human intelligence, without waiving their human intelligence, their vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, their personality, personal feelings, or any other factor... His, that is God's complete and coherent message to mankind, was recorded with perfect accuracy. God guaranteed the result. So even though Paul would write it one way with one vocabulary, John might express it a different way with a different vocabulary, and Peter even again with a different vocabulary. Each is absolutely correct and without error. And the vocabulary that one used might be a little different than the vocabulary of another, but in the totality of God's revelation, when you compare Scripture with Scripture and passage with passage, what we get is a much fuller view of the truth that God is trying to communicate, or that God is communicating to man. His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy. That means there are no errors in the original Autographs. Now, that's a technical word. I'll put it up here on the overhead. Autograph. A-U-T-O-G-R-A-P-H. We think of autograph as a signature of some famous person. But it also refers to the original documents or a written document. So, we say that because there are errors in the text as we have it today. They are called errors of transmission as the text was copied from one scribe by one scribe from one um, manuscript into a new one, sometimes he w- his eye would skip and he would leave out a word. Or he would s- there would be one phrase in one verse and a similar phrase uh, maybe two lines later, and he would leave out what was in between. Or sometimes he would insert a phrase, a verse early. Or it, it, sometimes what happened was you would have a manuscript 
and the, the monks in the scriptorium would be writing comments in the margins just as you do in your Bible. And then uh, 50 or 60 or 100 years later, the next monk would come into the scriptorium to write out a copy and he would include the comment of the previous monk 100 years earlier as part of scripture. So these are called uh, errors of transmission, scribalist errors, and they're fairly easy to pick out and to uh, determine, and that comes under the study of textual criticism. It is, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, it's not that we have 99% of Scripture, it's that we have 101%. And we have to figure out the 1% extra that slipped in and remove that. And that's the science of textual criticism. We have all of Scripture, we just have a few errors that have slipped in here or there, and none that affect any significant portions of Scripture or any doctrine. Uh, one of the rules is never base a doctrine on a passage that is, has a textual problem, and we try not to do that. Uh, but all doctrines that, are, that we believe are clearly stated in the Scriptures many, many times and are not based on passages where there's some sort of textual problem. But we say that the, the, <coughs> there is no error in the original autograph. Now, it's one thing to start with a document that has no errors in the original. And it's totally different to begin with doctrines or to begin with a document that has errors in the original. If, because if the errors have seeped in through transmission, you can sort them out. But if there were errors there in the original, then where were the errors? How do you decide what is erroneous and what is not erroneous? So there's without error in the original uh, languages of Scripture in the original autographs. The very words themselves bearing the authority of divine authorship. So there is an inherent authority we have seen in the Word of God. This is a definition of inspiration. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed their human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Point number two, this is referred to as the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. Now we need to explain these words and what they mean. Verbal means that the very words themselves are inspired. The very words themselves are inspired. One synonym as opposed to another synonym was specifically chosen by God the Holy Spirit in that particular instance. Now, one thing we need to guard against is when we talk about inspiration, we do not mean that God dictated the Scriptures. God did not dictate the Scriptures. If God dictated the Scriptures, then there would be a uniform style and vocabulary throughout the entire Scripture. And that's not true. There are different vocabulary, different styles throughout the Scripture. So it's not dictation. But God the Holy Spirit so governed that without overriding the individual personalities or style or backgrounds of the individual authors, he guaranteed that each and every word communicated exactly what he intended to communicate in the original autograph. So the very words are inspired. God does not inspire merely the thoughts, concepts, or ideas. Some people get that idea, that, that, that thought in their mind that, that it's the ideas of Scripture, the concepts, the doctrines that are inspired. It's more than that. It's not just the ideas. It's not the doctrine. It's not the theology. Of course that's inspired. But it goes beyond that to the words themselves, the individual words. If you change a word from run to sprint, think about the different image that that communicated to you. And sometimes that's important. To walk, to jog, to run, to sprint. Each communicates something a little different. And sometimes uh, a difference is only a difference in style, and sometimes a difference between one word and another is, is a minor point that God the Holy Spirit is trying to bring out for us. So the, uh, inspiration extends down to the very words themselves. What that means is that whenever you interpret the Word of God, you have to determine uh, why, ask questions, why this word instead of that word. So you have to have a good understanding of Greek and Hebrew vocabulary. That's why it's important for a pastor to understand the original languages so that he can 
get into the text and find out what, what the nuances are and why one shade of meaning as opposed to another shade of meaning. The second word that we use to describe our view of inspiration is plenary. Plenary means full, means whole. In this case, it means that every word of Scripture is equally inspired. Not just that the words are inspired, but that every word is inspired. From the begat passages of Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 and 11 and other passages to the descriptions of the temple, the detailed descriptions of the construction of the tabernacle and the temple, to the passages that describe all the dynamics of our personal salvation. Every single word is equally inspired. Not just the so-called spiritual words like regeneration, redemption, justification, but the conjunctions, the prepositions, the particles, the definite articles. Each is significant and is equally inspired. So verbal emphasizes the words. Plenary emphasizes the totality of scriptures. Another word that we use in describing the Word of God is infallible. That has to do with its authority. Every word is equally authoritative, but not every word is equally relevant to every believer. For example, all the descriptions of how to build the tabernacle have spiritual application to us, but they're not directed to us initially. They are not as significant to us in the church age as passages such as Ephesians 5 that deal with the Christian institution of marriage or Romans 5 which explain justification or Galatians chapter 2 which explain justification. Every word has equal authority but its application is not equally significant. And then a word that became dominant in theological discourse in the 1970s is the word inerrancy. What happens is that the world system is constantly attacking what we, the verbiage that we use to describe the authority of Scripture. A hundred years ago, all you had to do to communicate was to say that you believed the Bible was the Word of God. Then you said the Bible was the verbal, plenary, inspired Word of God. Then you had to say that you believed the Bible was the verbal, plenary revelation of God that was infallible. Then you had to add to that the concept of inerrancy. So the Word of God is verbally and plenarily inspired of God and is infallible and without error in the original autographs. And now you have to say, because there are always those who want to fudge a little at one point or another, take out their razor blade and say, well, I just can't understand how this is true. This has to be an error somewhere. That They've come to talk about limited inerrancy. There's always jailhouse lawyers and theological seminaries that are trying to somehow get out from under the authority of Scripture. So now we have to say that we believe the Bible in verbal plenary inspiration and the Bible is infallible and has unlimited inerrancy. Inerrancy means that no error existed in the original autographs of Scripture. It is without error in the original autographs of Scripture. So point number one was a definition. Point number two defined it as related it to the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Point number three, the mechanics of inspiration. How does inspiration take place? Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Well, while you're turning there, I want you to think a little bit. Having said what I've already said about the definition of inerrancy and uh, the definitions of verbal and plenary inspiration, let me read to you what is said in our doctrinal statement. We believe the Scriptures in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, both Old and New Testaments, to be the plenary, verbally inspired Word of God. Plenary means that the entire or complete, fully revealed Word is found in Scripture. Verbal refers to the principle that every word is fully inspired by God. Inspiration means God-breathed and refers to the fact that the Bible is God's complete and connected thought to mankind. And then several key scriptures are listed. 
Now, that's pretty good. It's all there. It's all correct. I would change it up a little bit. I would emphasize not, we believe the Scriptures in the original languages, but in the original languages in the original manuscripts. That needs to be added to make it more precise and more clear. Uh, the definitions of plenary and verbal need to be uh, refined just a little bit. And uh, inspiration needs to be expanded a little bit, perhaps giving the definition which I read earlier in there to make sure it is clear, that every point is clear. But that's, that's good. That's good. We need to make sure we understand the doctrinal statement. How many churches that I've been in and gone to where people have no clue what the doctrinal statement of the church is, and when they join the church and they read it, they read it but without understanding. So one of the things that I want to try to bring in as we go through our study of Galatians, I want to refer back at times to our doctrinal statement to make sure we understand what it says, why it says what it says, and what it is that we say we believe. Okay, point number three, the mechanics of inspiration. This is in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. There we read in the English, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, I'm not going to take the time to exegete every detail in this, these two verses this morning. I just want to look at them in light of the, what they say about the mechanics of inspiration. It begins with the phrase in the Greek, pasagraphe, which is translated all scripture. It's the feminine singular nominative adjective of pas. Pas means all, everything. P-A-P-A-S means all, everything, everyone. It defines the extent of the graphe. Graphe is a technical word, G-R-A. P-H-E, it's a technical word used for Scripture, the holy writings. It's from the, the feminine noun meaning writings. All Scripture. And then, I don't know how it is in your English text, but it probably, the is, is probably in italics. Let me look at mine here. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, the is is not in italics. In some versions it might be because there is no verb in this portion of the text. That has created a problem. What you have in the Greek is pas, graphe, and then the adjective theopneustos. Looks like this in the Greek. This is a masculine ending for the adjective. It's spelled T-H-E-O. P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. Masculine, nominative, singular ending. And it is linked by the conjunction chi and to another adjective, ophelimus. Looks like this. Now this is an important part of grammar. O-P-H-I-L-I-M-A-S. So you have an adjective pas describing the extent of the noun graphe scripture, followed by two adjectives, theopneustos and ophelimos. It should be omicron. O, O-P-H-I-L-I-M-O-S. Masculine nominative singular ending. No verb. The verb is left out. Literally, it reads, all scripture inspired by God and profitable. Now, some people have suggested that this should be translated like this. All Scripture inspired by God is profitable. Now, what's wrong with that? You have to put an is in there because it's what's called ellipsized. That means it's left out. Often when, a, when we talk fast, we, we drop words out and they're understood to be there. But this, is this correct? Is this, is this possible? Well, first of all, it's not correct because of a grammatical principle. The grammar here, when you have a, your subject followed by an adjective, is a way of, of constructing a Greek sentence where you have a pred what's called a predicate 
adjective. So it is clear that both theopneustos and apolemos are predicate adjectives, and they must be treated the same. In a predicate adjective construction, you have your subject, then you have your predicate verb is, and then you have your adjective. So the supplying is at the beginning, all scripture is inspired, is grammatically correct. But furthermore, you have a theological problem. If you translated all scripture inspired by God is, then you're further defining the all scripture or restricting its definition by inspired. All Scripture inspired by God. Well, what about the Scripture that isn't inspired by God? So that's where they go with that in the subtle nuances of theological verbiage. When you say all Scripture inspired by God, you've immediately stated that some Scripture is inspired, some Scripture is not inspired. But that Scripture which is inspired by God is profitable. All Scripture inspired by God is profitable. Implication, the Scripture that's not inspired isn't profitable. So we have to pay attention, and there are several English translations on the market that do translate 1 Timothy 3.16 in that manner, and that's completely incorrect. The statement is that all Scripture, that is an exclusive statement, that the entire Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, making up 66 books in the English canon, are the authoritative revelation of God. It doesn't refer simply to the Old Testament. Remember when Paul wrote this to to Timothy? It's his second letter to Timothy. It's right near the end of his life, which was somewhere between 63 and 65 B.C., I mean A.D. Not all uh, of the New Testament had been written by that time. There were uh, some books of Peter, uh, the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, uh, probably Jude, Revelation, uh, Hebrews had not yet been penned. So what does this refer to? Does it refer to just the Old Testament or does it include the New Testament? Well, while you're here, Timothy, just turn back a couple of pages to 1 Timothy 5, 18. show you how Paul uses Scripture here. 1 Timothy 5, 18 says, For the Scripture says, And so he quotes two passages of Scripture. For the Scripture says, one, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now he calls both of these passages Scripture. So he treats them as having the same level of inspiration and authority. The first quote is from Deuteronomy 25.4. The second quote, and the laborer is worthy of his wages, is a quote from Luke 10.7. So he takes an Old Testament passage and connects it to a New Testament passage and treats them both as authoritative scripture. And this is interesting because Luke probably wrote his gospel just maybe just two or three years before Paul wrote 2 Timothy. So the ink has not yet dried on the gospel of Luke and Paul is already quoting from it as having the same authority of divine revelation as the Old Testament specifically Deuteronomy. So that's an interesting way to watch how Paul has used the Scriptures. And then if we turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll see further indication from how Peter referred to Paul's writings. Let's pick up the context in verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also... Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. What an understatement for Peter to say that in Paul there's a few doctrines that are difficult to understand. Anybody who's tried to wrestle through Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 through 11 knows that Paul has many things that are hard to understand. And I don't think Peter grasped a lot of the doctrine that Paul had. Uh, Paul had written. He says, In which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort. And we still have that trouble today when we find people, even the taught, who distort the scriptures that Paul wrote. He says, Which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. 
So here, by that phrase, the rest of the Scriptures, Peter is including the writings of Paul as part of the authoritative canon of Scripture. So the internal witness of the Word of God is that all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, and Paul would, and it's inherent within the definition of all Scripture that even the Scripture that has not yet been revealed would come under this category because it is, by definition, Scripture. So all Scripture is is breathed out by God. Inspired is a bad translation. Back in 2 Timothy 3.16, we have that adjective, predicate adjective construction of theopneustos, which is a compound word. I'm going to write it, the two words up here, neustos, from the root pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. P-N-E-U-M-A has to do with wind, spirit, spiration. Theos, the prefix theo from theos, the noun for God. So it is God breathed. It is breathed out by God. That tells us that the source is God. This is not to be confused with how we normally mean the word inspiration. We may talk about how a writer such as Shakespeare was inspired when he wrote his sonnets. We may talk of a Mozart who was inspired when he wrote his his symphonies and, and operas. We may talk about a Beethoven and how he must have been inspired when he wrote his, his symphonies. We may talk about an artist and how he was inspired by his in his artwork. But that is not what the Scripture means when it uses the term inspiration. That is why this is a somewhat faulty translation because it may communicate ideas that are not in the original Greek. It means God breathed. It has to do with the fact that God exhaled the Scriptures into the soul of the Apostle who was writing the Scriptures I can't spell this morning. He exhaled into their soul the content of what he wanted communicated, and then they inhaled that and exhaled that as Scripture in their writing. And God the Holy Spirit, as we will see, oversaw, guided the entire process so that he could guarantee that the final product would be without error. So we see in the beginning of 1 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture, the entirety of the Old and New Testament, is breathed out by God. Now, let's look at this in terms of a syllogism. Now, a syllogism is an expression of deductive logic. In principle of deductive logic, if your premises are true, then your conclusion must be true. That's an absolute law of logic. So let's look at our premises. First premise is that God is absolute truth or veracity. God is absolute truth or veracity. This is part of His character, and we see this in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, which reads, Paul says, May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. God is absolute truth or veracity. The second premise is that God is the source of the Scriptures. God is the source of the Scripture. And that's our verse, 1 Timothy 3.16. God is the source of the Scriptures. The conclusion, therefore, since both premises are true, the conclusion must be true, therefore... This is a symbol, if you remember from math, for therefore. Therefore, the Scriptures are absolute truth. The Scriptures are absolute truth. Now, this is hard for people to understand today because most of us have been brought up in the cosmic system that expounds. And relativism has seeped into every nook and cranny of our thinking so that when we come to a concept of the Word of God as an absolute, no matter how long we've been believers, no matter how much we've learned from this, we still fight relativism in our own thinking.
because we've all imbibed a little too much of our culture, and, that's, and we can never be completely divorced from the culture in which we are raised. So we have to deal with this whole concept that the Scripture is absolute truth and absolute authority and addresses every single area of our life. And this we find in John 17, 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer to God the Father just before He goes to the cross. He says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So the conclusion from this is, by looking at our syllogism, that if God is absolute truth, and He is, and God is the source of Scripture, therefore the Scriptures must be absolute truth. What about the role of man? This is a common objection. Well, God may be involved in the process, and maybe when it came out of the mind of God, it was without error, but it has to go through this apostle who has a sin nature, so isn't it distorted when it comes out the other side? Doesn't human involvement somehow muddy the water a little bit? No, it doesn't. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Very important passage on inspiration of Scripture. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, what that is saying is that prophecy is not, does not originate from any act of human volition. When it talks about prophecy, it's not talking about, um, and this is not a passage of, of talking about hermeneutics, it is talking about the origination of the revealed word of Scripture. In that sense, all prophecy is direct revelation from God. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy, that is the direct revelation of God, is a matter of one's own interpretation. It doesn't originate with the individual. But, our 4 in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, the key word here is moved by the Holy Spirit. And that word is the present passive participle, of the Greek word pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O, which means to move along, to carry, to, and has the implication of directing. It's used illustratively in Acts 27, verses 15 through 17, when the Apostle Paul is on his way to Rome and he's in a ship. And they get caught in a tremendous storm. And it doesn't matter how skillful the sailors are, the winds are so strong that the ship is blown wherever the wind directs them. And that word is this word Pharaoh. And it indicates that the Holy Spirit, just as the wind blows that ship wherever it wills, so the Holy Spirit moves and directs and carries the writer of Scripture along regardless of their volition. Their volition is not involved. It is superintended. It is guided. It is directed by the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. No prophecy, that is, no revelation of God in the Scriptures was ever made by an act of human will. It did not begin with human volition. Human volition is overridden by God, the Holy Spirit. Men were moved along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. So from this we see that the Holy Spirit is the agent of divine revelation. What men wrote did not originate from them, but from God who controlled the process and freed it from all error. Remember, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John 16:13. So from that we conclude that God prevented the sin nature of the writers from diverting, misdirecting, confusing, or erroneously recording His message. Now, that's how Peter and Paul describe the use of Scripture, but how did Jesus use Scripture? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Here we're going to see the extent of revelation. This will be point number 5, our Lord's use of Scripture. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. These verses ought to all be underlined in your Bible so you can go back and find them later. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter. Now that is, in the, in the Greek, that is yod. 
Old English translated that jot, J-O-T, jot or tittle, but it, it refers to the Hebrew letter yod, which looks like this. It is translated Y. Not the smallest letter or stroke. Okay, the smallest letter, which is yod or a stroke. Now, what does it mean? That's in the original, or I, th- I like the translation of King James better, a tittle. Jot or tittle. What exactly is a tittle? Well, in Hebrew, you have a letter that looks like this. This is uh, the letter Beth, B-E-T-H. And it is what we translate as the letter B. Now, the difference between Beth and the letter Resh, which is translated R, is simply this one line right here. That's a tittle. Another example would be... uh, in the, uh, or let's use this example here, the bait and a cough, K. See that just the difference is this little segment right here. That's a tittle. Then you have the letter Dalit and the letter Resh. See, this is the only difference between, it's absent here. That little tick right there is called the tittle. It makes the difference between one letter and another. For example, in English, you might have the word lit. The only difference, and then you have the word hit. See, that changes that first letter. An H adds a little stroke to the L to change from an L to an H. And then if you close the hit and close that like this, you have the word bit. Or you might start off like this and have the word fun. If you add a stroke to fun, you end up with pun. If you add another stroke to pun, you end up with bun. Or you might add a stroke like this and end up with run. So Jesus is saying that the inspiration of Scripture extends down not simply to the, to the letters, but to the very form of the letters to make sure that each word is accurate. So Jesus emphasizes the minutia of Scripture are inspired by God. This is why I take the time when I'm teaching the Word to go through what's the original Greek? What's the parsing of it? Is it a present active indicative? Is it a future active indicative? The only difference between a future and a present active indicative is one letter. But that one letter will make a tremendous amount of difference in interpreting what the original language says. Now, you don't have time to go through and analyze every single word in Bible class because um, we just don't have that kind of time. But that's the role of the pastor-teacher in his study in exegeting the Scripture, is to know the original languages and to be able to go through in detail and do a grammatical analysis of every single word, because often the grammar has significance. Let's look at how Jesus based an argument on grammar. In John chapter 10, verse 30. John chapter 10 Verse 30, Jesus is in an argument with the uh, Pharisees. Jesus was prone to confront the legalists of his day. And in John 10.30, in the midst of his discourse, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. This is a very important passage on the deity of Christ and Jesus' claim to deity. He says in the Greek, Egokai hapater, Hen Esmin. And Hen, E-N, is the important word that we're looking at as far as our discussion is concerned. I and the Father are one. Hen here, H, because it's a rough breathing mark, H-E-N, is a neuter singular. Now, as an adjective, it would be, depending on what it would refer to, it could be either masculine, feminine, or, or neuter. Here it is a neuter singular. That means he's talking about one thing. If he had used a masculine, he would be talking about one man. But he doesn't say that. He says, I and the Father are one. What is he emphasizing? If he, by asserting, by using the neuter, he is making an assertion that he and the Father have identical essence. If he had used the masculine, what that would mean is that he and the Father were the same person. 
So he is claiming to have the identical essence as the Father. He is claiming deity. Now, am I just making that up? Am I just putting too much emphasis on the neuter as opposed to the masculine of this particular word? Well, if I am, so did the Jews. Look what they did. Verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why? They understood what he was saying. They knew he was committing blasphemy. If he wasn't God, he was committing blasphemy and he was claiming to be one with God and they just were incensed about that and they were going to stone him on the spot. Another passage where this same kind of thing happens is in John 8:58. Turn back a page or two. Once again, we see Jesus in, his, in a confrontation with the Jews. And at the conclusion of that, he says, uh, let's pick up the context. Verse 56, he says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And that tells us that Abraham, in terms of the revelation God gave him, had some understanding of the fact that Messiah would come and what that would be like. He saw my day and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, you young whippersnapper. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And this is what the Greek looks like there. Ego, E-G-O, which is the first person singular pronoun, I, and then ami. E-I-M-I, which is the existential verb to be in the uh, first person. It's I am. He doesn't say I was. He's not emphasizing I was. He's saying I am. Present tense emphasizes continual existence. That there never was a time when Jesus did not exist. So Jesus is basing his claim to eternality, which is a an attribute of deity. He is claiming deity and he's basing it on the tense of the verb. That's why it's important to do these detailed grammatical analyses of the Scripture because all through the Scriptures, the writers of Scripture do that to give us that example for exegesis. Now, what have we said about inspiration? We've seen that it's verbal, that the very words and the very letters are important. Secondly, we've seen that it is minute. The minutia of Scripture is inspired and inerrant. Every detail is important. And it is authoritative. Every word carries with it the authority of God. So I want to conclude our study of the doctrine of inspiration with three corollaries. Three corollary principles. The doctrine of inspiration is basically God the Father, through God the Holy Spirit, inspired or breathed out the Scriptures. But that has certain implications. These are the corollaries. Corollary number one. Though every word is equally infallible and authoritative, not every word is equally applicable to every believer. Some had direct application to Israel. Others have direct application to church-age believers. Corollary number two. If every word is breathed out by God, and it is, then it is the responsibility of the pastor-teacher to investigate and exegete every word, the entire counsel of God. Though not every word can be taught due to time factors, he must study every single word. That's the job of the pastor-teacher. He feeds the flock. He feeds the sheep. How do you feed the sheep? By giving them the nourishment from the Word of God. When the pastor stands up to teach the Word of God, he better make sure that he's not just giving somebody's opinion or his own opinion, but that this is indeed what the Word of God says. And that demands hours of study and thought. Corollary number three. If every word is breathed out by God, then the Bible is absolutely and totally sufficient for salvation, spiritual growth, and problem solving. That's a very important corollary. If the, every word is breathed out by God, then the Bible is absolutely and totally sufficient. That means it's enough. You don't add anything to it. It's all you need for salvation, for spiritual growth, and for problem solving. Now let's go back to our passage. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. 
That's just doctrinal background of what Paul is doing in Galatians 3.16 in this parenthetical aside. He refers back and exegetes the Old Testament passage. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Seed being singular, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to all Israel, not to all Jews. So when God made the covenant with Abraham here, and we have that described in Genesis 12, 1-3, Genesis 15, 7-21, and he says that he is going to bless the world through Abraham's seed, He's not talking about Jews and his descendants, his racial descendants in Israel, but he's referring specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is further expanded upon in the Davidic covenant where God promised a seed to David that would sit upon the throne of of David and rule Israel in the coming kingdom. That has not happened yet and will not be inaugurated or begin until the millennium when Jesus returns at the second coming. So, Paul just makes this simple point that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are fulfilled not in Israel collectively, but in the one person of Jesus Christ. And so he will be the source of blessing. That's the promise back in verse 14 or 15 that we... uh, excuse me, 14, that we studied last week, in order that by Christ Jesus, by by the personal agency of Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that is justification by faith alone, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul continues his argument in verse 17. He says, What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as nullifying the promise. What's the point? The point is, let's look at our illustration in verse uh, 15. Verse 15 says, in terms of human covenants, man adds nothing. In a man's covenant, nothing is added. Verse 16 is an aside indicating the implication from the Abrahamic covenant. And verse 17 is, Abrahamic covenant is given over a period of time from about two, about. 2050, those are approximate dates, down to about 1900, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In about 1875, Jacob, remember the three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob moves from Canaan to Egypt. That's his starting point. In 18, well, I've already got that here, 1875. So you subtract, remember you're dealing with B.C., so you subtract 430 years and you come to 1445. Now, all of these dates are really fluid. Depending on what book you look at, there's going to be an addition or a difference of one or two years because we just can't nail everything down from the Scriptures. Um, 1445, I've seen dates from 1441 to 1446, depending on how you take Egyptian chronology, and that's a whole different area that we don't even have time to scratch the surface of that. But 1445 is the date of the Exodus. Or 1446 is the date of the Exodus. 1445, the next year, is when the law is given on Mount Sinai. So that is the, that's the parameters here. What I'm saying is this, that the law, which came 430 years after the Abrahamic Covenant, does not set aside the covenant. Just as man does not come back in later and add to or change a contract once it's ratified, God's not going to come back in and give a covenant 430 years later that will invalidate an unconditional covenant which was given earlier. And that's the point of the Abrahamic covenant is that it was unilateral. It was a one-sided covenant given by God we saw that last week. God is party the first part to Abraham, party the second part. In Genesis 15, Abraham was asleep. And God is the one who moved between the, the, uh, the sacrifices and the altars, indicating that God was binding himself alone to the conditions of the covenant. So it is a unilateral covenant, an unconditional covenant that is based totally on who and what God is for its fulfillment and not on man. Verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Conclusion. 
If God promised it to Abraham, then it is not based on works, minus works, plus faith. Faith alone. It's not invalidated by the covenant with, with uh, Moses. Therefore, it continues forever. And the principle of faith alone in Christ alone, the same in the promise, the unconditional promise in the Abrahamic covenant, is the same that goes on forever. God has granted it. That emphasizes grace. Free grace to Abraham by means of a promise, not by means of works. So we'll come back next week and look at the purpose of the law in verse 19. And this is very important because very, very few people understand the purpose of the Mosaic law in reference to spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning, to study these things, and to understand the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy, because that gives us such confidence in the veracity of your word, that we can trust it, that no matter what the world says, no matter what people may think, no matter what the circumstances, and no matter how horrible things may look in our lives at times, we know that we can rely exclusively upon your word, because it is absolute truth and reflects your character. Father, we pray that as we continue to study these things, that our confidence in you will increase and that we will continue to advance towards spiritual maturity and glorifying you with everything in our lives, with our thought, word, and deed. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.